All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Empathic Futures Lab podcast, the show about human-focused futures for the environments in which we live. I'm Chris. And I'm Christian. And uh, we have Coulter with us today. Hello. I'm the special guest. Special guest Coulter. Uh, Christian, you want to introduce... Yeah, so uh, Coulter was uh, he was able to step in uh, and put in a lot of effort uh, and help us get this digital picnic project built. Uh, and so Coulter really took on all of the the coordination of the digital bits and uh, and how the project uh, works from a functional standpoint and how people control what what they see on the projectors. So yep, really that was super it. helpful. Yeah, yeah, we're very very grateful, especially since. With the timing of my trip to Asia and, and the deadlines, it, it didn't work super well with me having to be on the project. And I think Coulter also just added a lot of stuff that I would not have been able to bring. So thank you for thank so, you for helping. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, I, I haven't listened to the, the previous podcast. So I'm wondering how much the audience knows about the Digital Picnic Project. Have you guys been discussing it? previously or we we've been talking about it kind of as this abstract thing that we did <laughs> okay and i think in the show notes we were going to include some pictures mm-hmm. uh but uh i haven't done those show notes yet so do yeah. you want to like instead of describing the project as it was intended do you want to talk about like what we what we ended up producing and, and how yeah. it works yeah because i think yeah i think we've we've touched on the fact that we we have an installation we touched on the fact that we want to blend um the physical environment with the digital environment and sort of work with some of those edges and and how they interact. So yeah, I think if we talk about what ended up happening, uh, that would be great. And yeah. So I, I guess I can start. Yeah. At, um, I came onto the project midstream. Uh, Christian and I were working on a different research project, and he showed me the the kind of proposals that he w- he was showing to the restaurant owner as well as the uh, Jeff Poss, the director of the architecture department, mm-hmm. and uh, was asking if. Uh, if it was something that I would want to collaborate on. And of course, it, it looked really, really attractive and a built project is something I'd really like in my portfolio. <laughs> well, like the topic, the topic itself is something that I'm interested in. Um, this, like as architects, we really want to consider the built environment and all the pieces that go inside it. So right. considering like the embodiment of technology and, and how architects can design these different uh, environments that we can enter that are you know kind of di- half digital environments, that, that really drew me in. And so it was actually quite an exciting opportunity. Like out of all the things that I did this semester in school, certainly the digital picnic is up up on top. Yeah, glad to hear yeah. that. That's awesome. And I think uh, it's not it, it it sort of doesn't live in its own world either, because I know a, a lot of the stuff that you're also doing have a a uh, very similar uh, background or language to them, uh, and at, at least in terms of the words and actual language, words that they use talk about these things. I think I think it's also important to point out that, and hopefully we can dig into that a little bit more over the next. Well, we're running out of time, so thirty minutes or so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll get in into a, that. We're in like a professional recording studio for the first time, but we have like a limited time slot to, yeah, which to talk. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're not paying for it either. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. I'm I'm the student that, that gets you the resources. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. But the I think one of the coolest things that came out of the digital picnic was, and we we always sort of had the idea that there would be a semi-transparent material that light is going through or touching, 
Uh, and what we ended up doing, instead of uh, smart bulbs or things like that, we ended up using projectors uh, to project different landscapes, which you can augment through a series of uh, modifiers or selections. Uh, one being, and this was all Coulter's idea, so maybe you can want to talk about this a yeah, little bit. For yeah, for sure. So I've, um, I've previously done a few projects uh, using this uh, program, visual programming suite called Max MSP. It's for uh, real-time sound and video generation. Uh, so I had created an, uh, a kind of app. Uh, it was like a fixture that went in a room and it would read in weather data and try to represent that non-figurally. So patterns of color, light and sound. We had a composer come on and make music that was generated with the data. So I was pretty comfortable with this pipeline from data to output. And when I was uh, when we were discussing the project as a group uh, and, and gauging my interest in it, I, I thought I can definitely go on because I already have this sort of knowledge with the program. Um, so we went on with, with Max MSP, um, and to get into the, the software end of it, it was, uh, I guess we have three, three words that the user is able to select. Uh, and from those three words, we generate a kind of digital mood and landscape. I don't know how specific do we want to get into. Well, we can, I think we should talk about it because there's a lot of people who wouldn't be able to go to it. And I think we're kind of proud of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think also start maybe even take a step back and, and, and talk about, like, I, when we submitted the brief for this both right. to um, Matt and, and Jeff, but also applying for other grants and things, it was sort of this idea of bridge, uh, creating digital artifacts that manifest themselves in the, fig, uh, the physical world uh, so that, you know, you're kind of bridging the gap between the digital and the physical. Um, in this case, it being this notion of dreaming, as we called it, where you're, like, creating something that you've thought up in your mind using your imagination or having coming up with some sort of atmosphere or look and feel that you want to replicate and sort of overlay on top of the world uh, as you're experiencing it. And, and in particular, we thought moving beyond sort of this museum environment where some installation like this might usually live and do it on top of like a dining experience. So you say augment the dining experience, which is a much more traditionally uh, sensorial experience and put sort of this semi-digital I don't know, atmosphere overlay on top of it. Right. Hmm. And so this all initially kicked off when I when we pitched the idea to Director Poss, and he had the suggestion about moving it in into a, a dining area, uh, specifically the Broadway Food Hall, which had just opened. Um, this was in July, so it just opened in like April or something, I think. So less than like three or four months before, prior to this. Uh, and it is a great open space for this. Uh, Matt was pretty much immediately on board with the idea of doing something in there. And we went through a series of design iterations in terms of the physical structure to get it to where it ended up at. But it never moved too far from our initial idea and concept. And we finished up with this PVC structure, which is wrapped in a sheer fabric. Um, and then the projection, uh, we can probably dig into that a little bit now, how, how that projection is determined from the user, how we translate from that idea, that sort of idea artifact, the thing that lives within a person's mind or even in how it kind of ended up as a more of about discovery and how you can scroll through and find something. Right. But how, how, how does the user actually do that? Right. So I think that the interesting aspect, how we're modifying the technology to create a different experience is we're um, in a way like materializing the screen. So the projection is going through multiple layers of fabric mm -hmm. as well. The projection, the size of it, uh, it's like an entire wall. So we have like two walls that are taking on these these patterns of light. 
color and, and you get these sort of shifting landscapes. So the output of the device is something more of a spatial experience than something on a screen itself. Um, and it's meant to kind of melt into the periphery as you're, as you're eating or just in the space. And it works the, pretty well, I think. Yeah. And then the, the input is also something that we've, we've modified. We were thinking about what is a control scheme that feels right with the, with the room, something that how do we manifest the input as kind of an object within the room that you interact with, and how does that reflect the intention of, of kind of questioning the embodiment of, of, of technology? If you think of like a cell phone or computer monitor and keyboard, these are like the standards, and we wanted to do something a little bit more strange and surreal. So the input is this sort of, I don't know, I think like a melting dolly clock is a good comparison. It's like a droop. It's uh, a techno droop. Yeah, so it's like we, <laughs> we have this sort of melty plastic case that is almost shrink-wrapped over these uh, microcontroller components, a tiny little LCD screen. So it's this plasticky droop with a glowing knob and a glowing screen. On that screen, you see three terms, and by clicking and rotating this knob, you're kind of modifying these three terms one at a time. And as you modify the terms, you're instantly seeing these shifts in the landscape on the walls around you. So you're like clutching this pearl or this droop in your hand, and you're making these like large-scale changes to the mood of the room, um, and it's sort of like a surreal experience. Right, and maybe like an example of those terms is, is how the modification turns out. Uh, you could have a, a swimmingly beguiling beach, for right. instance. Right, uh, there's, uh, we were talking, there's like a really complex, you know, setup that we originally imagined for how users would select these, these environments and modify them. And two things that I leaned into when I proposed this like three term system is that, uh, well, there are like surrealistic exercises that artists would carry out. You get like a book of like random procedures you do. And that was supposed to inspire these like unthinkable subjects that you would try to depict in art. Like this is out of the 20th century. So like there's this aspect of surrealism where the user is seeing these terms and it's up to them to decide what they mean. As well, I was thinking there's a game called Just Dance where the computer would try to guess how you're dancing. Um, but instead of anything specific, it would just sort of throw out random adjectives at you. And it's trying to confuse you and bamboozle you into thinking that it's making these very concise judgments of your movements, but it's totally not. So like in the, in the user's head, we're trying to create an environment in which they can attribute meaning to what the computer's doing, even if it's a much more simplistic model on the inside. Right. And that's where we're, we're creating these uh, kind of word lists that you can choose between. And then we have these modifiers and outputs that are related to the words, but it's really up to the user to, to say, like, how does this feel to me? And, and what does beguiling mean as a color palette? You know, <laughs> we, we created a color palette for it, but we're, we're trying to create a space where we're, we're, there's no sort of objective measure of how effective right. our, our mappings are. And that's where... It's not just the computer that's dreaming the environment. You're kind of dreaming the, the meaning or like right. imbuing yeah. it with meaning. And that makes our job a lot easier, doesn't it? You know, we're not, we're not <laughs> right. so worried. So. You don't have to fully customize everything. Right. right. So if I can get a little bit more specific with those three words, we have uh, the first word is an adverb. So swimmingly, frighteningly, obtusely, sublimely. Those are modifiers or distortions. So if we think about like those words as, as distorting an image, making it smear or ripple break into pixels and and that sort of that those sort of operations that's what the first word connotes and the second word beguiling what tenacious. else tenacious incendiary yeah. crisp that was one we didn't end up using but those are color palettes so what we end up doing is we're mapping the output to fit into a color scheme 
And the changes in color scheme like really, really change the mood in a large way. And sort of a, a color is picked from that palette. And then the, the device that you hold in your hand, all the lights within that device change to that color. Um, so you get that immediate feedback and satisfaction for changing that. And the last word is usually pretty simple. It's just like tundra, beach, jungle, birds was one we added. Um, and that is yeah. sort of the like input images that we're modifying with the color palette and the distortion. So if you chose mountains, you'd be getting a series of 30 photographs of mountains, beautiful photographs we scraped from online that are kind of randomly shuffled and then moved through in a series. And actually the pace between the photographs is altered with uh, the other distortions. So with just those three combinations and the modifiers in the program, we're able to generate, you know, thousands upon thousands right. of combinations. Right. And I think one of the things I want to circle back to is the physical, the physicality that uh, the projections are given when when they're shot. So what's really nice about the shears, it's like a 50% fabric. It's, it's, it's woven, except it, it has a transparency. Um, and what that does is allows light to go through to the next layer of shear behind it, and then and then eventually onto the floor, and and all that sort of comes together and creates almost a hologram. And it's it's really evident in really in high contrast images, which I guess that makes sense. But one of the things that that does is that it connects the person much more to the physical nature of the image. And even when it's like a computer interface, uh, the actual computer screen that you're seeing on there, it feels like a physical object, an artifact. And I think that's probably one of the most successful things that has come out of this. That and was sort of unintended, right? It, it was not something that going... We didn't there. really think it would happen. We, I mean, it wasn't something that we had thought about, right? But it allows us to talk about it in a really cool way, yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's a little more architectural. I, I yeah. not... Unfortunately, have not been able to experience that yet. It's kind of it, sad that Broadway's not open at night. Yeah, it, it only really works at night, um, unfortunately. Yeah, I've, I've seen this during the day, but not the projector at full force at night. It's um, it's 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 really it's pretty fascinating when you when you're actually able to see this, um, and maybe even best from the outside. Yeah, that's one aspect I really grew to appreciate is um, you end up seeing people occupying the space as silhouettes. And Christian mentioned high contrast images. So when you get patches of light, the surface becomes opaque. And then when it's very dark, it becomes transparent. So you're, you're like varying the amount that you can see through the room. Mm -hmm. um, and when we were testing out different kinds of images and videos, we got we found or discovered these very interesting interplays between interior and exterior that could be like basically played up by what we display on the screen. Right. So if we like continue to explore that space, I think there's a lot more we could do with it. Yeah, and what's interesting is I think when we were kind of initially concepting this out uh, and, and going through the iterations of what this box is and what we're doing with this box, we always felt like it would be a better experience on the inside. Uh, and, and, and then the projectors things, once that started happening, I think that's when it's like, okay, now this is a cool experience from outside as well as hopefully inside. Right. I don't know if it ended up being all that cool on the inside. But at least from the pictures I've seen, it looks like it'd be really fun to watch on the yeah. other side. Yeah. Um, so I guess one thing that I'm curious of, I think we've talked at length or, or people who have listened to multiple of these episodes kind of know where Christian and I stand in terms of architecture, in terms of uh, digital design and, and how these things collide. I guess I'm curious, Coulter, uh, what you thought was like the most interesting or most successful portion of this project? And well, go ahead. And I want to piggyback on that a little bit. And as we try to transition to you talking about your work in immersion and the physical relationship that people have to digital interfaces as a way to kind of transition from what we were talking about on the last podcast, as well as uh, uh, the picnic and kind of 
if we can kind of weave that conversation a little bit here okay. at the end. I'm going to try and, and merge those two questions because if I think about the thing that is, for me, like the most benefit, uh, f- the, the, biggest, the biggest benefit from having it like this big box in, in a space like that is, um, I don't know, I think about our space that we created or I'll just call it the picnic, and then compare it with something like Buffalo Wild Wings that's absolutely covered with screens. And they're screens that depict virtual worlds with such, like, depth and, and visual interest. Like, I don't know, like, when I when I sat in a Buffalo Wild Wings, like, it's just, like, above a certain level. Like, it's just, like, you're not present in the room anymore. You're, like, you've, right. you've, you've become, like lost in whatever sport is right. playing well, on you're not screen. like talking to your friends you're looking at you're watching right. a game and if you talk to your friends you're almost interrupting yourself right <laughs> so like i think architecturally in a lot of ways a screen that is situated in an environment it it starts asking um certain things of its of the occupants in that room passively it's saying you know you can sit in this room but also escape into this into the space of the screen and enjoy the entertainment and so in a lot of ways screens they like bifurcate the space that you occupy and they, they, they allow this sort of escape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that in a way corrupts the like lived experience within a room. And so I've always been interested in the, in design projects that try to, they introduce screens or screen like technologies into rooms, but they're there to enhance the room experience and not to say there's this other space that you can venture into and, and lose kind of awareness right. of your body. And by, you know, uh, dematerializing the screen by blending the borders between inside and outside of screen, having these multiple surfaces and the multiple transparencies. I think that the screen is it, like the the bezel or the outside edge of the screen is is destroyed, and you're no longer thinking about the screen as this two dimensional thing, but as a space and a mood in which you are occupying. And and hmm. that's where I think the project is is interesting because you're starting to to rethink how screens are integrated into architecture. Okay. And okay. what kind of experience you can have with it. Right. But, uh, okay, so here's a, here's a question that goes coming up as I was thinking about this is, uh, and maybe you even want to talk about your, your bezel, your installation as well. But I think when you're talking about screens and consuming you and consuming your attention to a virtual world, it's like you have to put your attention onto that screen versus if you're, like, bleeding it out, you're kind of losing awareness of that screen and it's becoming part of your environment. I think that's, to me, that's a little strange that you're, you're, you're almost becoming lost in the space and, and becoming part of the screen versus like pulling your attention away when the bezel exists. Like that, to me, that's an interesting dichotomy where you'd almost think it's the other way around where there's no bezel. You'd, you'd look at the screen and be more in tune with it because there's no edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like art that kind of blurs that boundary between real and virtual is interesting. Um, I think that for our moment in history, like having edges on screens, like that's what our moment in history is as far as technological development. Um, if you think like, I I care a lot about like production design. I think that when we try to depict different worlds or different time periods, it's all up to how the environment is sort of realized on the screen. Um, that is meant to tell the audience about how people feel about technology or how technology is integrated in their lives. So that's something I like really pay attention to, uh, pay attention to when I watch movies. And I think that like if 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 we like jump into the future and we we try to look back on our current time period, the 2010s, I think that like the the iPhone will still be like very much an emblem of this decade, right? right. It, it like if we think like someone from 2030 is trying to depict 2010, it's going to be like these devices that we hold in our hands. It's going to be screens that are plastered on walls 
Right. And people kind of standing still staring at the screens and being distracted <laughs> in a way like that right. is that is the emblem of our time. This distracted staring into the screen. I think in the future, those sort of borders that define our relationship with with screens like those will be like those will be kind of dissolved and we won't have that separation right. between inside and outside of of real and virtual. And obviously, I see that as both an exciting prospect of a world where real and digital are, are blended and people growing up in such a world don't see such a distinction between the real and the virtual but for right. us for the the <laughs> the old people in that future i think we're going to perceive it as maybe a loss of our it's, sense of reality it's certainly yeah it's certainly a little weird the sense of reality because you'd think that having no bezel is like it, it would consume you too much right that it'd be too much a part of your life but in fact at least in this kind of small sample size it's the opposite which mm-hmm. is, it's really strange also, um, I think I've gotten way ahead of myself where I didn't even really define what a bezel is for, <laughs> I think like I have this art project where I say it's bezeliness intensifies. And, uh, for someone like me, who's absolutely fixated on technology about be- bezels is like a very natural term, but it's, right. it's quite a weird one. Uh, it's kind of an industry specific one. So it's a frame, right? It's the frame around a screen. I, I define it more abstractly as when you look at a screen, it's like, the part of the screen that isn't the screen. So it is the frame around it. But if you think of a CRT monitor, you know, if you look at it from an angle, like the whole back of the screen that juts out is part of the bezel. Mm. Right. And and like the bezel, like when we apply it to technology, I don't really I didn't really see it used until we got to the flat screen point. So when we got to like flat screen displays, there was sort of an inbuilt question that was generated in that format where it's like, at what point will the screen become, you know, paper thin? And at one point, will the bezel, like this this area around the picture, when will that just go away? Right. And, you know, if we look at cell phones and cell phone advertising, like this is this like real estate of the screen and the bezel that is encroaching on it. Like that is the biggest question. And that's how you get sold on the next device. And now we have like notches and it. it's so scandalous <laughs> that this like thing is perturbing. It's right. like perturbing the real estate that should be video, <laughs> you know, should be content. Um and you're getting that... in the way of my porn. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so for that reason, that's why I interpret the bezel as kind of a political right. site or political zone of our time where there's an unquestioned assumption that, you know, bigger it's... screen, smaller bezel equals right. more immersion and more authentic experience with content, right? So right. so this question of immersion, I know you said you've written out a paper on it and you've brought up the name Cronenberg a lot Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of, of how people physically interact uh, with uh, technological, I'm going to say entities, Mm -hmm. uh, giving them a life in their own, really. Uh, Can you expand? So the place that the obviously, maybe it's not obvious, like the bezel has a very important place in terms of how people immerse themselves uh, into, into a digital environment. And last week we talked a lot about interfaces. Can you... I'm wondering if you can dig into or, or translate this idea of immersion, immersion right. and like technology moving forward. Right. So um, the paper that I wrote was questioning this idea of like a shrinking bezel and pictures without borders being the side of this kind of like idea of the future of our time. We mm-hmm. want to be like this. We want this seamless experience where we're, we're not distracted by mm-hmm. outside things. And we want to binge TV shows. We want to live in that world. And I wanted to connect this ideal of escape into media as evidenced by the way that things like displays evolve over time. I wanted to connect that with a longstanding history of escape, um, escape into media. 
Mm-hmm. So I read this absolutely wonderful book, and it's a TV series called Ways of Seeing by um, John Berger's and the BBC. It's from the 70s. Um, and it was kind of like a Marxist reading of the emergence of fine painting in the European tradition. And what they end up arguing uh, within the within the work, uh, it's, it's quite a nice read if you can find it, is that fine painting developed uh, under the kind of, I guess it was, it was under like a, a aristocratic, it was like a tool for aristocrats to yeah. depict and manifest their wealth, like immaterial mm-hmm. wealth. So they would end up hiring these uh, fine painters to paint uh, vast landscapes. So they're landlords, they own the landscape, they want to see that landscape depicted inside their home. Mm-hmm. They would depict vast feasts, like temporary moments of wealth are depicted in ways that are like immortal, immortalized wealth, uh, immortalized feast. Um, as well, they would depict themselves in scenes that are virtuous or like they'd be these very embellished self-portraits mm-hmm. um, that would hint at their intellectual rigor. So they'd have books, they'd have globes because they're globe trotting and this and that. As well, they would depict um, kind of scenes from from uh, uh, scripture. So they'd be depicting virtues that they're said to, to, to have. So you're saying they're virtue signaling. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> and Social media. So yeah, so that this like the selfie is is as old as fine <laughs> European painting, right? And, and uh, of course, the Marxists saw that this was kind of uh, the the interplay between wealth, uh, wealth concentrated wealth, and the arts, and yeah. how the arts is valorized by people. Uh, we valorize artists like Van Gogh, but really they they were the exception to the sort of you know capitalist reality in which paint, painters needed money <laughs> to live, and aristocrats right. had it. Right, and they paid you. Right, and so it was their their interest in in having these wells depicted that developed fine painting itself. Right. So, what I argue is, you know, if you think of like Versailles covered in these fine paintings, um, they're really windows into virtual worlds. Yeah, and I argue that the architecture of these very like fine spaces it's porous. So you have some of it is lived, right? It's the space that you occupy that you eat in, but your constant your gaze is constantly shifting into these virtual spaces and the the aristocrat who owns these paintings and this space like their head is allowed to kind of float or their mind is allowed to float out and kind of consume this identity that they aspire to have and i view that as a sort of immersion so they're taking these virtual spaces virtual qualities and wells they're trying to imbue the view their lived environment with them and they're using screens like they're not moving they're not tv screens they're not cell phones but that sort of that use of the virtual to, right. to enhance a, the life experience. It's a flat plane with an edge screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if we think about uh, these really old paintings, they had these really elaborate frames around them, these ornate, gothic, whatever mm-hmm. forms. And they're, they're we, like, they became, they, they went out of style at some point. But uh, when I was reading about the design of frames, it said that they kind of imply a space between that of the observer and that of the subject. So right. like, if, if you think about like, they have these like uh, 45 degree angle corners, it's like a fake perspective. Mm-hmm. And it was said, I don't know how accurately that, the frame protects the soul of the painting, huh. I guess. Um, and for some reason, like that idea of like the frame is very essential to the experience of the painting and, and separating it and giving its own space so that like the lived space doesn't corrupt the painting. Like that went away at some point. And I see that beginning kind of with, with like the modern art movement. You have like painters like Rothko who have these like massive paintings where you can't really see the edges anymore and you kind of fall into it. Right. It overwhelms your senses. Um, I also looked at um, who did super graphics, Charles Moore's group. Uh, Charles Moore. Uh, 
they would have these like pictographic systems. Mm-hmm. Like they would have graphic designers make pictographic systems that would like cover multiple faces of mm-hmm. buildings. They'd go from the floor to the wall to the ceiling. Uh-huh. And so that was an image without a border. Right. Right. And so the image like directly interfaces with the the architectural experience and these super graphics were almost like uh, brand or identity markers Mm -hmm. for the project. So like a swimming pool could have wave shapes, spirals and things of that nature that that go from inside to outside. It's like symbolic. Right. But there was no, there was no frame. There was no border. Mm -hmm. Um, And we wanted that interoperability between image and environment. And so that, that takes us to today where we have these screens and the screen has kind of replaced the architecture um, as a space for, for building identity. So I think of like New York Times Square, where we no longer have iconic buildings. We have these gigantic screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to have, you know, big industrial corporations. They would like hire architects to design a kind of um, corporate identity through their architecture. And now it's all about advertisements and branding and, and right. graphic design. And so that that the, that that place to signal and build identity has shifted to this virtual space where it's it's far more flexible it's cheaper it's more adaptable it moves faster it's liquid and and i think like this virtual space is so much better than ours (laughs) we can do so much more with it yeah that's that's kind of why i think there's there's an idea that like if you if you can just ignore or forget about the real world and disappear into the virtual one like that's like that's how you kind of escape this like right not well, so good place. That's kind of an interesting perspective for someone trained in architecture to have in terms of we build real physical things or create real, supposedly real physical things. Right. Well, that's funny because, you know, I, I originally chose architecture because I was interested in things like video game environments, virtual oh. environments and movies. And I thought, I don't want to go to a video game college that doesn't sound like, I don't know, it, d- it didn't sound to me like the best place to learn about space. Right. You know, I thought like I could go to an architecture school, learn about real space and, and somehow translate that, that sense of design into the virtual so space. So you were never one of those like Lego kids necessarily. Oh, I was totally Lego kid. Okay. But you're yeah. not someone who's like, come in, I want to build a house or a building because I was like having fun building Lego things. It's like, I want to build video, like I was building things in space and then that translates to video games and now I want to learn about how to make video games more real. Right. It's for me, everything is, is visual. Mm. Um, that's, that's something that, that's put me uh, in conflict with a lot of our right. education. Well, because we're, we're always learning about detailing and, and systems and not right. necessarily purely visual. For me, details, like, details and aesthetic. It's banal. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 ex- yeah. I feel like the execution of detail is completely, it's just execution. Right. Most of the time. Like, it just needs to get the job done. And if you want to design it, then it's aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in like video game production, when people talk about detail, they just mean visual detail and right. visual interest. And it's like, right. that's where I, I talk about Greebles. So there's, if you think of like the, the Star Wars Millennium Falcon and how it's just got all this random stuff on it, just right. glued on, it's, it's called oh. kit bashing where they just have random gobbledygook all over the surface and it means technology, it means something, it, there's a sense to it, right? Yeah. But you don't know what it is. But what's really, really funny is it's been like retconned, right? So if, if you've seen the most recent Solo movie, there's a different version of the Falcon which exists. Um, and what they've done is they've deconstructed, they, they've gone in with that different version which is more whole and then they've deconstructed that version into what hap- what you see in the rest of the movies, 4, 5, and 6, mm-hmm. um, which which I found to be absolutely hilarious. Right. Um, that they're kind of post-rationalizing the actual shape and... Um, 
didn't even notice the that. aesthetic of of the Falcon. I think that's like very emblematic of our time. We're like we have we have this like stuff that people didn't think too hard about in the '80s, and now we're just like <laughs> we're so starred of content. We're just like, how can I make the Millennium Falcon? more real so I could reconsume it in a more yeah. deep way. But anyway, I, I like the idea that uh, you like as a video game artist or as a movie producer, you use detail as an effect. Um, yeah. It's visual interest. And so in my mind, like the way that you depict architecture and images, if you just like scribble correctly in the right places, you can make people think that you've figured out oh, 100%. there's like a specificity to it. Right. Um, so many rules of thumb for renderings that make it look like it was kind of thought out. Or, exactly. Or quite thought out. And I'm interested in that, the power of an image to create this reality that is totally fantastical, but within the mind of the observer, it, it might as well be real. Right. Um, and I find that a lot of like contemporary architecture, the experimental stuff is about producing what I call arbitrary complexity that makes it look way more spectacular than it actually is. It's rather banal, but <laughs> you know, you, you, you greeble, you greeble your stuff and right. suddenly it's the future, huh? Well, it's like, kind of like opposite yeah. of minimalism in some ways. Right. Yeah. Minimalism is about expressing something clearly and finding the essential and, and the greebled is about confusing you until you're impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's hilarious. I think there needs to be a little bit of rewinding here. I don't think we actually introduced you properly. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Coulter is a graduate student at UAUC, and uh, you did undergrad and were a year behind us yes. in undergrad? Yeah. Um, when, when at, uh, at, at Illinois, and then you went off to work at, in Cyprus at doing some cool research and oh, laser scanning yes. uh, ancient buildings, artifacts, places. Um, and, cool. and then have come back to, to finish your master's. Yep. So I, I think we should have mentioned that. One thing in which you pointed out a while ago that has stuck with me, one comment that you had, and, and we're running short on time here, so we'll try to make this quick, but I kind of wanted to tie this into I, the conversation. I have one more thing to talk about too. So. Okay. Was w- The three of us have a very similar background. The suburbs of Chicago, yep. probably reasonably comfortable childhood. But one thing that you had connected to and that I found really interesting in, in, in that context was we have a fascination, like you think we have a fascination. I know I have, I, I agree with you on this, that we have a fascination with sci-fi and virtual environments because the environments in which we were conceived were so and, banal. Were, and grew yeah. up were so boring and pathetic <laughs> yeah. that, it, that you, we need this escapism in order to actually be fascinated with something. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but I, I definitely see that in what you guys talk about. I think of like the people I valorize from the Midwest are like, I don't know, David Foster Wallace Right, or Olivia's Woods, and like DFW, like wow, like his idea of the future is like so in line with mine. And it's like you're in this space where you see people so sincere, and I don't know, it's it's like you get this sort of cynicism that counterbalances the like the I don't know optimism and sincerity of the people around you. That Um, sounds kind of sad. (laughs) Oh, it's great. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like where I grew up, like. There is no, there like, it's fake architecture. Right. It's global, it, like it's globalized architecture. There's the, when I grew up, there was no sidewalks. There was no downtown. There was no cute little cafe. I didn't meet people randomly. I went to school on a bus, and it took an hour. Oof. I met people, and I did, worked really hard, and then I went home, and I, I don't know, I watched TV. Like that was my life. You know, you you saw that. Have you ever seen the movie like Scrooge with, uh, with Bill Murray? No. It's like. The, the Scrooge in that movie is a guy who grew up on TV because his life was just 
banal and boring and yeah. it, it like it's about like reconnecting with the real but um, i really identify with that character where it's like i don't yeah, know like the most yeah the most interesting the most interesting environments i had growing up was probably video games yeah and and we we like that is such an inspiration to, and, and i think like it will be an ins- like an inspiration oh, to people younger than us for sure like gen gen z like that we're carrying influences from media into the real environment and like the reason that you know for me like i didn't go to like versailles or rome and look like this great architecture and say i want to become an architect no like i saw a movie and you know <laughs> the light hits a, a pocket of fog in the right way in, in a really captivating image and right. you know it's this like this visual effect of of space as depicted on the screen that really excited me about the prospect of designing it's almost like Google's material design, their flat material design, but like taken to the next level and, and overlaid on the real world. Um, right. And that's, and, yeah. yeah. Enter digital picnic. <laughs> yeah. And when I, when I make architecture, I say like work from the render out, like make a compelling image and then like design an architecture before. that creates that image, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, okay. So one thing, and this kind of leads into this that I, that came up that I was thinking about in similar topic. And I think I know where you're, what you might say here, but so one thing that Christian and I have uh, talked about is as we kind of blend the digital and the physical, like how necessary is it to have edges? How necessary is it to know what's real and what's fake, right? Like, do you need to know that something is actually physical if you're walking around with like a Google Glass on? Or, or is it okay that as it becomes visually complex and as we learn these tricks and learn how to like overlay light on fog and things like that, that we might confuse a light on the fog to be real when it's actually overlaid onto a screen in front of your eyes or something like that. I think to me, you know, I end up thinking about the future a lot and it's not the like, I think that we have a limited capacity to imagine the future because we always project ourselves into the future and we don't consider how people change Mm -hmm. and how we're going to be ill fit for the future and how the things that we touch and recognize today have no play in the future ultimately. So I think that for us, we're we're perceiving a loss of the real where we're like, okay, like you, you raided the castle, but what did you do in real life? You were sitting on your ass. And I think in the future, the line between you raiding the castle in real life versus virtually, like people just won't really care. It'll all be interoperable experience. Yeah. And, and so I think that it's the question of can we maintain the real within the, and the virtual, if we can maintain that border. I think for me, like, eventually no like there's going to be real matter and digital matter and they're going to interoperate and people will not really see a meaningful distinction between the two because the illusion so to speak of the of the virtual be so complete there's no no angle you can look at it from where it falls apart you know that's 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 our era right um so the illusion will be so complete and so interactive that there won't be any reason to keep the distinction between the real and the virtual and that's why I think we should arrest like the moment that we exist in, the moment where there is a divide and there are contradictions and there are compl- complexities that emerge. Intensify it. Right. And, and explore what that means. Like, what does it mean when the, the illusion falls apart or when you fall for something fake? Or right? when you, you explode the frame. Right. Um, and I think like this is like, like I said, it, when people depict this era looking back, this like this is what they're going to care about they, right. they said like you know i can imagine a comedy where you know a, a guy is constantly befuddled by the real and the virtual <laughs> and he's like you know he's falling for fake news and he can't tell you know this is our condition right now and 
it's not it's not necessarily going to be the condition of people in the future. Right. Um, but I think like this is this is our moment. This is our this is the what we're going through, and we should really be using it as a muse to create things like art and to have a conversation about it. And I think like a lot of new media art is already using this this condition, uh, but I think it's 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 not really been articulated clearly. Yeah, well, I think we got to keep doing it. Um, unfortunately, we can't keep doing this. Yeah, we're out of time. <laughs> but I think that's a really good place to end on because yeah, that's and, like a, something to think about for and, sure. And we'll have to maybe maybe you can be more regular. We'll see. Yeah, I wouldn't um, mind. I think that, that would actually. probably be good to to have another voice on here as well. Yep. Um, to temper us a little bit. Just, yeah. right. <laughs> or to untemper un- you. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> push, you, push you further. Probably a little direction. bit there's, of both. There's definitely a lot of other topics that we want to that we want to oh, discuss sure. as well. Sure. But for now, I think we'll we'll wrap it up and get the key back before we get kicked out. Or fined. Or fined. Or both. Yeah. yeah. All um, right. Thanks for listening, everyone. All right. Well, thank you for thanks. having me on. Yeah. It's been a yeah. pleasure. That was thanks exciting and fun. And, that was awesome. You know, you did like 40 minutes of monologuing for us, and we had to hardly do anything. So it's easy <laughs> get for me us. on. I, I, I put me on autoplay. I yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> well, that we'll just be, print out like three questions and just let you talk. That could be an app onto itself. Yeah. You just need something to do. Listen to Culture Talk for. 40 if you minutes. like, if you get, if you listen to enough of me, you can just feed into a, a neural network and yeah. spit out more of me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be amazing. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, have a good one. All right. See you.